Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of MIP. I'm here with my friend, Jared Morningstar. Jared works for the Center for Process Studies and the Cobb Institute, where he supports these organizations promote a process relational worldview and flourish in a digital world through aiding in a variety of marketing and communication tasks. He also works for the Psychedelic Medicine Association, where he helps communicate the latest insights in psychedelic research for mental health conditions to an audience of clinicians and other healthcare professionals. Jared is also the founder and director of, is it Aleph? Aleph. Aleph, Traditional Wisdom in Review, a digital Islamic studies publication which seeks to build intellectual and spiritual bridges between the Islamic tradition and Western cultural, religious, and philosophical sources. Well, that sounds very juicy, Jared, and uh, welcome to the podcast. Hey, man. Thanks. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for such a, a warm welcome. And uh, wow, you, you really are juicing me up here right off the <laughs> bat. So I try, I, I do what I can, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I thought I'd, I'd record a conversation with you because I've kind of been collaborating and communicating with you about various topics, I think more along the political and, you know, philosophical lines, but also we have kind of parallel interests, I think, in religion and spirituality and this whole, you know, all these, this constellation of different communities and, and idea spaces. So I just thought, let's talk and see what comes up, but I want to start about how I first met you and reached out to you and it was on Facebook and we were Facebook friends and you had written I think on your story on Facebook something about Jordan Peterson and, and what he was talking about you know in his book uh, 12 more rules I think about abandoning ideology right it's I think it's chapter six in that book he has an entire chapter called abandon ideology and I had just written a medium article where I basically critiqued that that whole chapter uh, from a meta ideological perspective. And what you had written on your Facebook story was like identical to what I had just written. And I was like, this is, this is wild. I got to reach out to this guy and see, you know, what's, you know, what's, what's making him tick here and what's behind this critique and, and kind of explore the consonance between, you know, what I've been trying to develop with this project and what you had just spit out there randomly on the Facebook story. So I want to start there. So tell me if you can remember, you know, what inspired your, that little rant of yours, uh, the, yeah. the critique of that chapter and what was your thinking behind it? Yeah, I, I think honestly, I, I just saw uh, on, on Jordan Peterson's own social media feed, like a very uh, uh, abridged version of what he must have written in the, the chapter of the book and just sort of, it, it didn't sit with, well with me. Uh, and I decided to, to, uh, respond. Uh, and I remember I was in, uh, I think I was in uh, Goodwill, uh, thrifting some clothes and uh, I was waiting in line and I, yeah, just on the Facebook story sort of responded to, to Jordan Peterson quick there. Uh, but the, the basic idea that I was trying to communicate uh, against his thesis that, oh, you got to get out of ideology, you got to uh, let go of these uh, sort of structures of thought that uh, control you, uh, this type of thinking is basically that uh, there's not really a way to, to get out of ideology. What he was saying there had uh, an ideological bent to it, uh, one specifically in this sort of conservative uh, vein that doesn't want life to get overly politicized and wants to focus more on uh, individual virtue rather than thinking more uh, systemically, politically about uh, the various issues that, that we face today. Um, so yeah, I, I commented, you can't really get out of this uh, ideological 
uh, game, uh, but I also said that that's not exactly this uh, iron cage that people make it out to be. Uh, you can have healthy and unhealthy ideology, uh, and that's going to be judged by, by various metrics, depending on uh, your ideology and other values. Um, but uh, also that uh, life can't be reduced to the ideological dimension, just like you can't reduce life to the biological dimension or the psychological dimension, even though these things also touch everything, uh, more or less. You can't, can't escape psychology, you can't escape biology. I think people would uh, generally find that pretty uncontroversial, uh, but I'd say the same for ideology. You can't, uh, can't escape it, so uh, try, to, try to work with it almost like uh, alchemically or something uh, instead. Uh, see what can be made of it to take a kind of pragmatic approach that this is a domain of life that we got to deal with one way or another. Uh, so might as well try and uh, figure out some tools and techniques for being able to, to navigate this space fluidly and with, with flexibility. Uh, and certainly that's very much what you're doing here with the media ideological politics uh, project, so. Yeah, awesome. There is a particular part of that, that story that you wrote that I really resonated with a lot, which is that the danger of a anti-ideological ideology or anti-ideological stance is that you become blind to your own ideological biases, right? When you think that you're beyond ideology, when you think you don't have ideology, you then lack a conceptual mechanism with which to reflect on your own ideology. Um, and so it's kind of, I, I make a joke of like, it kind of parallels an interesting way the conversation around like anti-racism, right? That the talking point there being that if you were not talking consciously about race and critically inspecting our own socialized biases around race, then you, be, you become blind to your own uh, implicit biases and kind of um, racist behaviors that you may be enacting, right? So this is, it's kind of a similar parallel, I think, but much more abstract and much more high level where it's like any kind of frame that you use to understand sociopolitical, economic, cultural systems and issues um, is kind of what I would call an ideology, right? That probably informs the specific issue positions that you take or policies that you support or candidates you vote for, but there's still some kind of like backdrop, right? That informs the more particular points of your political belief system. Uh, and so when, we not, when we're not talking about ideology consciously, then it's very easy to fall into this polarizing accusation of you are ideological in the most pejorative, condescending, you know, derisive way possible. Well, I am not, right? I'm seeing reality clearly, objectively, and practically, and in a common sense way, and you're just ideologically delusional. And that's a very unproductive form of conversation that we get locked into in all this polarization, right? So I really like that part of like, talking about ideology critically so that we can reflect on it and then kind of work with these heuristics, work with these systems of thought, work with these lenses consciously, develop a healthy relationship to them and then cultivate them in a way to better grok this, this incredible complexity that we're all you know, swimming in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's like uh, you want to be able to look at your ideology and not always through your ideology. Um, but that task becomes basically impossible uh, if you say that you don't have an ideology uh, or that you're somehow uh, beyond this. And so then your, your critical eye can be uh, all the more uh, stringent against others who are stuck in this ideological game. But uh, you have very few tools for uh, sort of critical self-reflection, which I mean is, is very necessary for productive conversation, as you say, uh, 
you have so many people stuck in this, uh, well, my tribe's right, my, my uh, political beliefs are the ones that shall uh, bring about the, the proper socio-political economic situation. If we could just all hop on this bandwagon together and things will be hunky-dory. Um, but I mean, pragmatically, that I, it's not going to happen. You got to actually have a, a good dialogue uh, across political lines and uh, sort of the critical self-reflection is going to be a key component to making that healthy and uh, productive, certainly. Absolutely, absolutely. I want to go back to what you said, though, that with a, with a caveat of this critique of not everything can be reduced to ideology, that right there, there are certain dimensions of reality or other categories through which we should capture or understand something without overly ideologizing them or framed, framing them as exclusively ideological in the political sense. So I, I'm curious on where you kind of draw that line between this is ideological or, or this has ideological implications, but this can't be reduced to being ideological and should be maybe captured or understood in a different way. Um, and, and to me, it kind of relates to one of the polarizing uh, debates in the culture war of what should be considered political and what is not political, right? And, and given that ideology tends to be associated with our, in, in you know, it's associated with the political sphere. Um, and like, you know, with all the recent mass shootings, for example, the school shooting, there's, you know, there's always that debate, like, don't politicize this, don't turn this into a political issue. But then other people are saying, but this is a political issue, right? Everything is political. We're all entangled in this system that it contains politics. So politics does have an influence on everything, whether we like it or not, right? So how do you think about drawing that line and when you think of something as ideological and when you think of something that's not ideological? Yeah, that's a great question. I, one of the things I've really noticed uh, in the wake of this uh, shooting is, like you're saying, all this rhetoric about, oh, don't, don't politicize it. But man, is that ever itself a political talking point? Uh, oh boy, look at my political enemies uh, reducing this tragic moral event to its political uh, dimensions to to sort of uh, bolster their their tribe and, and their agenda. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, again, it's like turtles all the way down uh, when you're you're critiquing the. Uh, overly political uh, machinations of, of your enemies, you're involved in your own uh, very political machinations. Um, but yeah, when do you use the the ideological sort of frame on, on things? I, I'd certainly say anytime uh, someone is presenting a, a sort of specific uh, political uh, vision or when someone is critiquing uh, another political vision. I think that's probably uh, some, some uh, situation where it'd be useful to take a sort of ideological uh, analysis type of, of perspective. Um, but yeah, I, I, again, I'd say uh, don't reduce it to that. And especially when you're you're having sort of a one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone or trying to engage in some kind of dialogue uh, oftentimes presenting that kind of analysis uh, uh, explicitly can just kind of muddy the, the waters a bit, like trying to just uh, uh, analyze away your uh, interlocutors sort of viewpoints, uh, often not helpful, but doing that uh, analysis internally so that you can then uh, sort of have a better understanding or empathy for what kinds of political values are, are driving these uh, individuals or um, kind of what kind of political logic they, they use to, to analyze situations. Well, that's very helpful because then you can uh, draw on some of those same resources to 
uh, present a different perspective or uh, draw out sort of implicit implications of their own ideas that uh, might connect and build bridges in, in helpful ways. Um, so yeah, I, I personally, I think uh, taking this more uh, stepping back and, and having this kind of ideological uh, analysis is, is very good for like, if you're blogging, writing an article, uh, it can be very helpful to sort of lay out how you're uh, going about that analysis for others to see. I, I'm not sure doing it explicitly sort of in a dialogue about uh, political issues is necessarily always the most helpful. Um, and then again, of course, uh, it's it's one of many sort of frames that, that you can take. So uh, looking at the, the psychological uh, as well, what kinds of uh, uh, sort of internal values might be at work or uh, kind of non-political, but personal biases that a, that a person might have. Those are certainly uh, helpful as well. Taking a uh, sort of worldview, religious kind of lens can uh, kind of be very related to some of the ideological stuff, but uh, also expand it uh, a bit more beyond the purely uh, political. Uh, so yeah, there's there's a lot of tools in the toolbox, and you you got to be uh, you got to have your finger on the the pulse uh, a bit to to really know what might be the right route uh, in a given situation in terms of figuring out sort of your own analysis, but then what would be kind of pragmatic for having a healthy, healthy dialogue. You know, we call this the Meta Ideological Politics Podcast, but a more accurate name would actually be like Meta Frame. It's just not as sexy, like it doesn't have the juice of ideological. So for pragmatic and strategic reasons, I went with ideological, but it's more that recognizing that the frame of reference uh, however you want to call it, whether it's a certain discipline like psychology or a biology or philosophy or whatever, really informs your, your thinking about the subject or informs what opinion you have on the issue. Um, and that we should, be re we should try to recognize those frames often when they're implicit, because I notice that in a lot of conflict and a lot of mediation work that I do, it's a, there's a clash of frames. And, and for example, um, I was meeting a conflict around like race and, and social justice issues. And so one party was really strong and really strident on the kind of anti-racist social justice kind of like woke perspective or standpoint. And the person they were in conflict with was really getting annoyed by that. And the, the frame that the person they were in conflict with was coming from was more, I would call it psychological and like organizational development. That was like their lens. And the other party was really coming from a more of a, the kind of social justice, I would say it's more like sociological, right? So talking about like power dynamics between different identity groups, right? And talking about your kind of socialized conditioning and positionality that has to do with the race that creates a kind of bias or prejudice or, or de facto racism, right? It, it's more sociological. And the other person didn't really come from a sociological frame. They were coming from a psychological and organizational development frame. And so those two frames were clashing, but they weren't really aware that, that those were the underlying frames they were coming from. It was more like, you're a bad person, you're a racist, and we're just going to fight and fight. So to me, part of the meta ideological task is to also kind of unearth that there is an implicit framework that, that both parties are coming from that contain its own values, that contains its own kind of like life world, so to speak, right? Um, and, and we should understand those things on their own terms instead of only looking at them through the lens, through one lens, which from that perspective, might write off or dismiss or just think the other person could be wrong, right? So that, that's kind of how I think about um, meta-ideological and not reducing everything to ideology is because whatever frame that could be also be captured by, I would also want to integrate into the toolkit, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's it's so interesting uh, figuring out these sorts of uh, diplomatic moves one can can make in in these spaces. Uh, I, I don't know exactly how I sort of came upon these types of perspectives, but certainly in sort of uh, early to mid 2010s, when kind of uh, the sort of SJW stuff was uh, really big. Uh, I, I did notice some like personal discomfort with like how um, some of these talking points were were metered out. I, I had some empathy for people like Jordan Peterson who were uh, critiquing these perspectives. Um, and so I, I kind of started to th think about uh, how I would go about this as well, but I have a very sort of uh, uh, diplomatic or sort of non-confrontational uh, kind of uh, disposition to myself. So I'm, I'm not going to be uh, sort of owning the SJWs and destroying them uh, a la Ben Shapiro. Uh, I really do want to kind of uh, draw out some of the, the implications, see, see where some of the, the natural dissonances are with some of the other values that, that people might hold. So um, yeah, I, I started to critique some of this stuff, uh, not in particularly strong uh, sort of uh, denounce, denunciatory terms, but uh, uh, I, I noticed that when I took a perspective that uh, wasn't so harsh as, as people like uh, Peterson or Shapiro, uh, I, I didn't really have blowback uh, in the same way that uh, a lot of these conservative uh, uh, commentators were really complaining about. Uh, I have never felt uh, worried about being canceled, but I'm also not any kind of serious public figure. Um, and I, I've 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 spoken rather freely about uh, these types of issues. So I, I guess just through that personal experience, I've kind of come to this general perspective that you actually can talk about these things, these really hot button culture war type things and kind of take a stand and critique. Um, but I mean, it is a very delicate project and um, being able to show how you are engaging some of these same values or empathizing with a particular uh, ideology, worldview, uh, what have you, sort of prior to then uh, deconstructing it a little bit is very helpful, uh, and and it really tones down the the reactivity uh, of the situation and allows for a much more open dialogue. Um, so I, I'm I'm hopeful uh, that uh, these are are kinds of conversations that actually people can have more productively. Um, I, I think I'm just kind of lucky to have a certain disposition that lends itself uh, to that sort of project. And that's probably true of you as well. Um, but certainly these are uh, tools and techniques that can be more explicitly uh, uh, disseminated and, and uh, taught uh, to folks so that uh, there are easier uh, alternatives for, for talking about uh, certain issues. Yeah, well, that is uh, what I make a living doing. But I, I'm curious, you know, how about for you personally, like, in terms of your kind of ideological label or, or descriptor, how, how would how would you describe how you orient yourself to politics? Not only in terms of the content, but also in terms of those kind of meta qualities that you were you were talking about. Like, how do you think about your own relationship to your ideology or your own kind of self awareness around your political yeah. sense making, so to speak? 
Right. Yeah, I think I'd probably uh, call myself uh, ideologically promiscuous uh, to, to be a little goofy about it. But uh, I mean, a, a more conventional term would be eclectic. Um, I think I probably have some kind of central orbit around some form of liberalism um, in, in the classical sense, but also drawing a bit on progressive liberalism as well. Um, but I have certain uh, Marxist sympathies and uh, more socialist kinds of uh, leanings at times as well. I think class analysis can be very useful. Uh, and uh, I, I see a lot of utility in some of those larger frameworks of analyzing capital and uh, creating a, a kind of workers' movement, uh, those sorts of things. Uh, I'm I'm not a dyed-in-the-wool communist uh, by any stretch of the imagination. My familiarity with Marxism is pretty surface level, all things considered. Uh, I like uh, sort of left anarchism uh, quite a bit. I think there's some really good resources there that uh, aren't dissimilar from some of the classical liberal stuff uh, in terms of kind of ground up uh, community culture building and sort of having that as uh, the sort of top of the mind sort of politically um, rather than this kind of more electoral type of process. Uh, there's uh, forms of traditional conservatism uh, uh, like uh, what Roger Scruton presents that I, I think are quite compelling looking at the kinds of virtues and uh, the, the value and depth of cultural traditions that sort of create a people and a nation. I think those aren't uh, things that can be so easily disregarded um, by some of the more progressive liberal or leftist types. Uh, so I think that's a, a helpful tool in the, the toolbox as well. Um, yeah, I, I think that's probably uh, most of my sympathies. Uh, I, there's a libertarian streak in there as well. Um, that uh, I think can be helpful uh, at times. Uh, always good to, to remain somewhat critical of uh, state power, um, even as it, it might uh, really actually be what uh, is the most uh, helpful solution uh, for a given problem. Um, but so, yeah, I, I have no idea how to uh, self-label uh, <laughs> with all of that. Uh, so I can certainly lay it all on the table in a conversation like this. Uh, but I don't, I don't really feel much of a, a need to, to have some kind of discrete political identifier. Uh, can just talk about things, so. Yeah, that's awesome. So sounds very meta-ideological, if I may say so myself. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about the traditional conservative stuff, because that's something that, you know, I've always been very interested in, I think, given my upbringing and in, in, uh, now looking back, what I could consider actually a very conservative, traditional, you know, Japanese, Confucian, Buddhist family uh, and Buddhist temple and community in Hawaii, where I think a lot of the members definitely adhere to a very traditionalist worldview, both kind of a Japanese cultural worldview that, that has its own set of values, very Confucian in origin, and also the Buddhist part of that, right? As opposed to the Zen tradition, which to me has a lot of, you know, the, the kind of emphasis on like a discipline and it, it can almost be very like masculine and militaristic uh, form of spirituality, right? Um, all the training and, and the, you know, the, it's called the shugyo in Japanese, right? And it's this like grit, this kind of stoic character building, enduring, you know, 
you you can you can kind of like bear the the suffering and then through the training and, and develop a kind of strength through that um it's very samurai kind of you know culturally and spiritually right so like that that's always kind of been a part of my cultural dna and so exploring the the western conservative tradition which i think is much more of an overlap with like monotheistic western religion which is kind of new to me and, and very exotic and foreign to me given i grew up in a, in a buddhist family um but that's something i've been exploring in more intensively over the last several years and kind of wrapping my own head around you know what is what is really at the heart of this critique right what is really here uh, and of course there are the kind of conventional tropes surrounding like you know trying to preserve good things and and you know there are all of these different different uh, ways of con conceiving what what the values or what are the gems that should be extracted from these tradition traditional uh, perspectives are right so I'm, I'm curious for you like let's just kind of riff on that like what is really really at the heart of it for you um both in terms of how these insights benefit you personally and also why as a society these are perspectives that are worth considering yeah uh there's a lot there uh certainly but yeah let's dive in uh so i i don't really have that kind of religious conservatism or even cultural conservatism uh in my sort of dna uh so to speak i grew up in what i would say is a culturally lutheran setting uh so religion did not play a, a heavy-handed role and uh, lead to particularly uh, sort of hardline conservative viewpoints. Uh, ELCA Lutheranism itself is quite quite a progressive uh, denomination of Christianity. Um, so it's certainly a different flavor than, uh, say, certain kinds of uh, uh, Missouri Synod Lutheranism, which are going to be more conservative, or even Catholicism, Orthodoxy, uh, these sorts of traditions. Uh, but when I really started studying religion in depth uh, in college, that's when I kind of started to see some of these perspectives uh, and see the value in uh, what you could broadly construe as, as a traditional uh, worldview. Uh, that started being much more along sort of spiritual and religious lines for me, but obviously those aspects of life are not disconnected from more practical um, things such as politics, culture, uh, these sorts of aspects. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think you can get a, a very cohesive um, and uh, sort of magisterial type of political worldview uh, sort of grounded within the the context of uh, traditional religion, uh, everything kind of fits together. I mean, one of the things that's unique about religion as sort of a sociological phenomenon is that it is this sort of holistic life orientation. It's uh, at least traditionally understood. Um, whereas uh, something like politics even kind of has its own own domain and there's there's things that are, are separate from it but a truly traditional religion it's going to touch on your sort of a personal inner life your family cultural aspects political aspects uh, governance uh, economics everything is is sort of related to this category uh, so starting there for a worldview and sort of the political uh, aspects of a worldview, you end up with something that is very holistic and integrated. And I think that's very uh, compelling for a lot of people in our contemporary time where 
a lot of things are very fragmented. Uh, and personally, I, I don't use that as, as some kind of negative value judgment, um, but a lot of people do feel that way uh, about, about this. Uh, so they, they can gravitate towards uh, traditional religion as uh, uh, something that, that feels much more grounded, much more stable. Um, and, and rightly so. I mean, these are things that have uh, histories that are hundreds or thousands of years old. Um, there's a lot of depth and wisdom and uh, just uh, resources within something that's been around that long and had to deal with uh, so much uh, historically. Um, so I, I think uh, there's, there is a lot to be gained uh, from grounding oneself in in traditional religion and really engaging with uh, all that a tradition can provide um, where I sort of start to uh, get a little bit uncomfortable is when this goes beyond just a sort of a personal quest of, of sort of finding resources for one's own life and you really get some of these big narratives that uh, set up tradition and modernity as these kinds of uh, oppositional categories. And uh, often then uh, what could just be uh, a personal project of, of finding wisdom and uh, insight and deep philosophy uh, can get really fascistic really quickly. Um, so there's a lot of young uh, religious converts, especially in Catholicism, Orthodoxy, uh, certainly the Muslim world as well, who um, end up uh, getting really enmeshed in these kind of big narratives uh, about tradition and modernity. And uh, now suddenly you have a bunch of uh, sort of sincere advocates for uh, theocracy uh, in our contemporary scene, uh, which to the average person is going to seem very far-fetched, uh, very unappealing. Um, certainly it's very far removed from uh, liberal sensibilities. Uh, but it's my contention that uh, the, the sort of leap from simply finding a lot of resources and value in tradition, traditional religion, to these sorts of uh, big narratives, it's not a logically necessary uh, leap. Uh, in fact, this whole sort of move of identifying as traditionally religious uh, is only something that kind of makes sense in the context of modernity, where you've already set up this kind of opposition of modernity as something entirely foreign or oppositional to uh, tradition. So really, you're kind of already in this, this dialectic uh, that uh, uh, is kind of making you do some interesting uh, moves that are going to have you renouncing sort of large large swaths of uh, modern human thought, uh, which in fact also is tradition and uh, has a lot of resources. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it's, it, it's gonna put you in a very reactive uh, position if you end up uh, going down that road. But uh, so my, my preference is, you know, just, just be religious. Uh, you don't need to uh, have this narrative of, of tradition versus modernity. Um, uh, there are plenty of people just being uh, normal religious people uh, nowadays, just like uh, they always have been. And uh, even in any age of history, uh, religion was uh, sort of dynamically interacting with the, the developments of its day. Uh, 
Certainly you have things like uh, Neoplatonism and the early history of uh, Christianity that uh, sort of infused into the, the thinking of the religion. Uh, and then that developed just into what was Christianity and these traditional people would consider that tradition uh, and that that is sort of a, a fine development. Uh, and then later with uh, Thomas Aquinas integrating a bunch of Islamic uh, theology into the tradition via uh, Islamic philosophers and theologians like uh, Ibn Rushd. Uh, again, that's tradition to these people. But suddenly, when we're in modernity, that project is called off for some reason. Uh, and it's because you're, this, this oppositional category has already been uh, sort of implicitly uh, called upon in people's minds. Uh, but uh, why do you got to do that? Huh? You, you don't need to, actually. Um, so uh, I think having this dynamic relationship between uh, one's religious tradition and these traditional sources and anything that is foreign or novel uh, is, is going to be the much more healthy and, and robust way to, to move forward with the, the sort of conservative resources of a tradition that can talk in deep ways about values and such uh, while, while not getting... Uh, uh, not renouncing all these other resources that, uh, hey, I mean, human beings have been thinking about some uh, pretty helpful and interesting stuff these past couple hundred years. So uh, don't want to just uh, offer some blanket condemnation of that. They might have some very important things to say, in fact. Do you know the book called Triumph of the Therapeutic? I don't think so. Okay, that, it's considered a conservative classic. It was written by a guy named Philip Reef, R-I-E-F-F. Um, in like the 60s, I think, or 70s. Um, that is to me one of the most interesting books I've read on conservative theory that to me really gets to the heart of, for me, per, my personal appeal to, to kind of conservative traditional and, and a, a lot of religious stuff included too in Reef's analysis, right? Where the, his contention is that the modern psychological paradigm and now I guess with the onset of kind of like wokeism or whatever, you could say kind of a sociological paradigm, basically, deconstructs this notion of like character and virtue and morality that's gained in a traditional religious communal setting by and it's replaced by this notion of like catharsis which started with freud so the cathartic paradigm is i have some kind of trauma i have some kind of problem and i need to kind of like um just let it out and i'll feel better right like i'll, I'll i'm gonna go to a therapist and, and i'm gonna explore myself um, and then I'm going to like release the negative emotions and kind of just like shake it off and then continue on my life. Um, or, I'm, or yeah, it, it, the, the impulse is kind of like towards, um, it's not an impulse of cultivation and building, right? It's not an impulse of like, how do we build stronger, virtuous, moral character? It's more of a, how do I like get rid of things? I'm not articulating this very well, but it's, it's something, it's a distinction I can feel kind of somatically, right? And I've always felt like this, this whole notion of like character development, which I think is front and center to a lot of people, like in the Buddhist temple that I grew up in. Um, and what does it take to build character, right? And part of it is dealing with adversity, right? So dealing with adversity and, and stretching ourselves and challenging ourselves is how we build character, we become stronger individuals. And this whole thing has a very, right now, a very Jordan Peterson-esque flavor, right? But I do feel like a lot of people are missing this element, this dimension uh, in, our, in our mainstream conversation. 
around trauma, around healing, around psychological growth and so forth, where we might talk about developing different skills to self-regulate, but this whole language, right? Guys like, uh, I'm sure you know, uh, Alistair McIntyre, After Virtue, he's critiquing this whole paradigm and saying, we've lost the language to talk about morality and virtue and character and religion and religious cultures give us the language and the kind of ecosystem of memes and concepts to put that front and center. And that if we lose that, we're going to lose our ability to grow a strong individual. So what I call my favorite part of the conservative critique is what I call the promotion of anti-narcissistic self-cultivation. How do we cultivate ourselves? How do we cultivate our characters and become virtuous human beings and citizens without falling into this kind of new age, narcissistic, like I'm listening to hedonistically pursue whatever whim comes up in the, in the moment. Uh, and that religion kind of gives the anchoring or the constraints with which to kind of structure your life in a way so as to militate the narcissistic traps of, of a more new age spirituality. And again, to me, it's, it's, it's even less about these concepts and more about the spirit of what I'm saying that I think a lot of people really feel like is missing with this kind of late capitalist culture of narcissism and, and materialism and nihilism. And how do we regain like a strong sense of moral vigor to overcome the sense of cosmological alienation that modernity has thrown ourselves into, right? So to me, that's kind of the deeper instinct that, that drives my interest. I'm just curious what your reflections are on what I just said. Yeah, absolutely. I, I uh, entirely empathize uh, with what you're saying. And I, I, I get uh, the distinction you're drawing. Uh, one way I might try and put it is, uh, I think the the sort of conservative perspective, especially with its religious inflection, in in its sort of robust form, is this idea that uh, you as a person are sort of for the world, um, like you are meant to to bring something uh, to to this uh, reality, um, and that there's this responsibility to uh, sort of respond in in ways that be, would be helpful and spiritually robust um, and uh, sort of uh, respond to this situation of, uh, in Christian language, a fallen world. There's, there's sin and evil. Um, and uh, what are you going to do about that? That's, that's quite the predicament. And uh, you can either make it worse, you can easily make it worse. Uh, and uh, it might feel good uh, even. Or uh, you can sort of accept that uh, there's sort of a deeper purpose to uh, finding oneself in this situation. And it's that uh, you are given the opportunity to uh, make it better, to bring beauty and, and goodness into this broken world and be a, a sort of a life raft for the, the people uh, around you who are, are looking for refuge because this world is chaos and uh, has all sorts of uh, shortcomings. Um, and so it's a, it's a beautiful, evocative kind of perspective there. Uh, and I see why people can be very drawn to it uh, in the context of uh, this capitalist, new age, uh, narcissistic, whatever, all, the, all these different threads coming together where the world is for you, in a sense. The world uh, is this uh, place that uh, uh, you play out your sort of healing journey uh, or something. Uh, you are uh, trying to be reconciled in, in, some, in some way. Uh, it, uh, you're this kind of main character who needs to kind of 
uh, deal with and integrates some things and uh, how what what avoids pain and and uh, setbacks uh, sort of personally in, in your mental health journey or, or whatever uh, well, you, you you don't want to to have situations where uh, you're you're sort of pulled backwards. Um, you want to have this sort of healing journey. Um, so you get here stuff like uh, these heavy-handed uh, notions of like emotional labor, where oh, I'm I might not uh, sort of. Uh, uh, be there for my friend because it's dragging me down. Uh, I, I don't want to listen to uh, my friend's depression struggles. I have my depression struggles that uh, this is just going to make it worse. Uh, yeah, it can, you know, that probably is truth to that. And you do need to be kind of pragmatic uh, about these sorts of things. But uh, yeah, having having these like reified concepts that uh, can really be be used uh, to always sort of recenter the self as the goal in some sense, rather than the, the self as sort of uh, a vehicle, a means for achieving something greater, which you see in these uh, religious uh, conservative paradigms. But, but both have their pathologies. I mean, uh, I think ultimately we have sort of a yin and yang uh, kind of situation here. If you're only trying to be virtuous and self-sacrifice and give to the world, without really fully considering yourself and um, the healing you might need and the needs you might have, you, you do have this kind of toxic masculinity sort of thing that can develop where, uh, again, you can't sort of look at yourself uh, in some kind of self-critical way. Um, you're, you're always uh, trying to uh, achieve for, for some virtuous end. Um, but what if you're off track because of some uh, sort of trauma that's actually guiding this? Uh, right now, I'm, I'm re-watching uh, Breaking Bad, and I think uh, Walter White is kind of a good example here. He's protecting his family. He's providing for them. Oh, he's doing a lot of bad stuff, though. Uh, he is, in a sense, this sort of virtuous male uh, conservative archetype who will stop at nothing to provide for his wife and children. Uh, but I mean, if you look at uh, the ways his behavior is actually impacting them in a very negative way, putting them in danger, uh, these sorts of things, uh, you do see that, okay, actually, there's something psychological going on with him. And he's very conveniently used this frame to, to justify uh, something which is ultimately being propelled by his trauma of uh, low self-esteem and sort of not feeling powerful or, or good enough in life. Uh, so yeah, this is just kind of rambly uh, reflections here, but uh, interesting, interesting paradigms, both of these. Totally agree. Just to put a bow on this conversation, virtue is really one of my favorite words in the English language. I love the word virtue. Um, and th that's what I really enjoy about the axial age traditions is all of them put front and center some notion of virtue and have their own conception of virtue ethics, right? Whether it's the ancient Vedic Indian religion, Buddhism, Confucianism in China, Taoism, and in the West, the kind of Greco-Roman uh, Christian theological tradition all have its own notions of 
virtue. I guess the, the traditions I, I know least about would be like Judaism and Islam, which I'm sure you can educate me on. But I, I still feel like virtue is kind of front and center, explicitly or implicitly, huge core part of these, these traditional religions. And I feel like that's really, we're really missing out on that in, in our current discourse. And what's so sad is that now when you when you hear the word virtue, people associate that with virtue signaling, like like this this really vapid, like shallow signaling for your side to to make you look like you're a good person without actually being a you know a morally having morally substantive character, right? You're just hashtagging or memeing something that appears to have a virtuous association, uh, but you're not really. And, and so like that to me is just really sad. Like when people think of the word virtue now, they just think of virtue signaling instead of like this real ancient moral tradition of what it means to cultivate virtues, right? So that, so I, I think a lot about what would a meta ideological approach to virtue ethics be that's really updated uh, to the 21st century that can be, that's not a kind of toxic masculine stoicism where there's obviously room for, you know, the, the latest developments in psychedelic therapy or trauma or ecstatic dance, I don't know, right? The things I would otherwise be kind of allergic to, but I think that reviving some healthy sense of virtue, but in a non-dogmatic and very fluid and very kind of diaphanous way is something I'm interested in. I, I haven't systematically developed what that would look like. I don't know. Maybe I'll leave it at that and just see if you have any thoughts off the cuff. Yeah, I think uh, I think virtue, incredibly powerful uh, and important even perhaps. Uh, but yeah, I, I feel like even the the whole sort of project of healthier dialogue or uh, sort of cross ideological navigation itself could kind of have a virtue frame. Like uh, it's also very pragmatic, but uh, instead of uh, sort of coming with these heavy handed uh, preordained goals of, of uh, your political project, uh, set that aside, um, though not completely uh, for the sake of virtue, because you actually need to deal with other people, even though that's really fucking hard. <laughs> um, and uh, it can be very uncomfortable uh, and requires a lot of uh, capacity for empathy and patience and uh, discernment as, as an individual. Um, it's a lot easier to sort of deride people on, on Twitter for being uh, stupid and uh, uh, insensitive or, or whatever. Uh, but that's not virtuous. Uh, it's virtuous to actually uh, build bridges where, where they can be built and to uh, just to like contribute to a, a healthier culture of, of dialogue of uh, sort of, uh, yeah, just uh, being able to uh, interact with uh, fellow human beings in a productive way, uh, even in situations of ideological difference or, uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's such a it's such a situation we we find ourselves in. I mean, uh, I think uh, certainly we both have insights here that uh, we'd love to to share with with the broader culture. But I mean, I still I still like haven't reached this point where it's like some kind of full like resolution of a perspective of of what you kind of do in this situation, like. How how do you deal with uh, sort of uh, boundary cases? Like, yeah, you don't want to uh, sort of uh, uh, just uh, 
uh, kind of uh, validate sort of Nazi fascist perspectives by uh, sort of honoring them with uh, good faith dialogue. It seems I, I, I take that critique very seriously. Um, but at the same time, man, those those perspectives are growing. There's a lot like coming out of those corners of uh, the internet uh, and creeping into to sort of non-digital life in very real ways. So, I mean, at the same time, you, you really do want to do something there and how to make those, uh, those distinctions, when to know uh, when it's sort of past time for dialogue and, uh, hey, maybe you want to make fun of uh, someone's shitty ass politics. That's a tool in the toolbox too, but you got to be discerning about uh, when to use it and uh, uh, knowing when to just sort of shut someone down or uh, denounce uh, someone's perspective rather than uh, going for dialogue. Uh, it, it's hard. And I think uh, maybe right now uh, a virtue perspective is kind of the best you have there uh, because it doesn't doesn't give you some kind of final answer final heuristic about here's where you do this here's where you do that it's it's always sort of this evolving responsive uh, pr process and responsibility uh, in in each situation as as they arise uh, so yeah I, I think uh, that's about uh, where I've gotten uh, with with some of this stuff. So, uh, and I thank you for for certainly all your contributions to my own thinking uh, in terms of these things. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I I think implicit in my work there is a kind, at least the people who are drawn to it's like some of the workshops I teach or the communities I'm a part of. I think implicitly there is a sense of like engaging with this kind of work, however difficult it is to deal with really polarized communities or relationships and looking at our own biases and blind spots and limitations and perspective and, and letting go of our own strongly held opinions and when it's warranted, right? That there is a kind of virtue in that, right? Whether it's cultivating humility or charitability or compassion and empathy for people you vehemently disagree with. There is a kind of civic virtue to a, on, at the collective level that emerges from this kind of community of practice, right? So I do think that's something I want to highlight more. I, I still haven't felt totally comfortable making that explicit because even I still have a slightly uncomfortable reaction thinking about talking about virtue explicitly, you know, like going into the corporate world and be like, let's talk about virtue. Like people, what the hell are you talking about? So I tend to, I tend to approach it actually more implicitly, like... Jared, tell me someone that you really respect and why you respect them and what is it about them that you really respect? Like, let's have that as the opening go around, right? Or another good question would be like, tell me someone who, like a wise person who's really formed you know, and shaped you as a person that's, and that's really been a benefit to you. Like, like what, what does that look like? And who was that person? And how did they help you, right? That, that's where, so like these kind of questions can tease out people's implicit notions of virtue and then create a space to talk about them. And I, and I, I really enjoy cultivating that atmosphere, right? Um, this is just a totally weird random thought, but like for my job, I read the entire 180 page manifesto of Peyton Gendron, the Buffalo shooter. And it was crazy and it had tons of racist shit and memes. And just, it was like, it really was kind of like a mentally ill, like racist Reddit 4chan, like all of the, the worst memes piled into a document combined with a whole bunch of like neo-Nazi talking points. One of the things that I find very interesting about these guys is that, and especially like these Nazi communities I, I've been kind of like tracking, um, is that their whole worldview is, aside from the racist memes and stuff, it's very mythological. 
Like they live in this highly mythologized world where they have a very mythologized view of this golden past of like purity of racial purity that never existed. And if only we can return there through violent and glorious means of purging the invaders and, and recurring. It's, it's very fascistic, right? It's, it's this theme of cyclical renewal that society has become corrupted and sick and needs to be uh, radically purified through violent methods against the other. And there's so much symbolism that actually is contained in their worldview. And, and, and there's a lot of Christian symbolism. There's a lot of like European tradition symbol, like, you know, like Richard Spencer's ads where he has like the sword and it's like this medieval knights. And, you know, there, there's a real draw to, to these ancestral roots and, and qualities. And I was like, you know, I don't feel like a lot of these guys are amenable to rational discourse, right? But working with the symbolism on its own terms could be fruitful as a kind of psychotherapeutic psychotechnology to like unleash on them to get them out of their racist worldview. And I, I had a weird intuition about doing some kind of like Jungian analysis on neo-Nazis. Like if you're so enraptured in this kind of mythological symbolic world, I, I don't know if you know, talking to you as if you're a rational human being is really good to work, but we can work with those energies on their own terms. Um, and I don't know if that that backfire <laughs> or if it would be successful, but that's just things I've been thinking about. Like, what would be the right tool to really, because this is a, really a growing problem. And through the internet, people are going to be exposed to all kinds of things. And we can't shut that down. We can't shut down the information streams, right? But how do we kind of build people's immune systems to prevent radicalizing to extremist violence? Um, and for the right, I, I really am Think, I think a lot about like kind of the Jungian archetypal approach to really work with those those raw primordial symbolic energies. Um, That's a totally weird thought that I had. It's a kind of thought that someone would have when doing like mushrooms. But what do you what do you think about that idea? <laughs> I think it's probably probably pretty spot on. Uh, yeah, I think uh, certainly this uh, good faith debate uh, paradigm is one of many tools and not not always the, the best suited, uh, but that doesn't mean the only other option is sort of deplatforming or kind of crude ad hominem uh, types of responses. Uh, working at that mythic, symbolic, uh, pre-rational kind of level uh, is probably very important. Um, uh, what, I, I've certainly thought uh, along similar lines uh, recently, um, and I, I wonder how you could sort of turn some of these fascistic values like against themselves and and how how that could perhaps uh, be effective uh, uh, i i one of this sort of classic memes of uh of this uh, ideology i'd say is this uh uh strong men create good times good times create weak men weak men create uh, bad times bad times create strong men this the cyclical as you're saying uh, kind of thing uh, and I mean, the, the focus here is certainly a virtue one on, on strength, strength of men, masculine uh, strength. Uh, and I wonder what would happen if you um, took that, that value, that virtue, uh, and, and tried to sort of turn it against uh, Nazism, fascism, these kinds of things, like uh, just this very like, wow, you need 
this uh, this goofy LARPy mythic shit to to be virtuous in life. <laughs> what a weak dude you must be to to need uh, such a fantasy uh, playtime sort of ideology. I mean, of course, that is kind of in this sort of ad hominem uh, type of uh, mode, but. I don't know. It could it could uh, could at least allow for some kind of real alchemy with uh, some of these uh, uh, sort of paradigms and and uh, value tropes that exist in these communities. So I'd be interested to see what kinds of reactions you'd get uh, if you kind of consistently like turned these values against uh, these folks. Like, oh, you you want uh, you want uh, purity and. Uh, and stuff, and you, I, I don't know how you turn that one around yet, but uh, I think there's a lot of uh, potential value there. Um, you want purity, and you're stuck in these internet communities, and uh, uh, what are you putting in your body, by the way? Um, these sorts of things. Uh, I think, right. uh, yeah, some potential there. It'd be interesting to see. <laughs> yeah, one thought that came up is like what, what, you're, what you're referring to is what I call memetic jujitsu, right? Mm -hmm. And one that came up to me was, you know, the phrase that guns are the great equalizer. And mm. there's, there's actually an evolutionary argument that it was the evolution of projectile weapons that actually spurred human cultural and civilizational evolution. Uh, because projectile weapons allowed a bunch of beta males who otherwise didn't have the strength to take out an alpha male. Right. So you could be 10 times as strong as me and be an MMA champion. But if I have a if I have a pistol, I can just take you out. So it's like, well, if you're such a strong guy, then take put away the guns and let's let's brawl in the street. Like, you know, I have a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, was two-time Hawaii, you know, super flyweight boxing champion. Let's see what you got, right? Uh, so that's like, <laughs> let, let's take away the equity aspect, which is the firearms, and see what this can do. Right? No, I'm kidding. But I, I do believe that anything, yeah, there is a place for like shit talking, you know, good faith shit talking, right? To kind of provoke someone into questioning their their beliefs and stuff. So, anyway, that's that's kind of an aside, but um. Yeah, so going back to the whole traditional thing before we went on this weird tangent, um, another thing I think a lot about too that I find very, very uh, meaningful, very important, very salient for a lot of conservative traditional thinkers is a return to ontology, right? A return to the ontological, which they feel like, and I think this critique is right on, has really been deconstructed both by modern forms of kind of empiricism or, you know, like the analytic school of, of philosophy. Um, that kind of brackets ontological claims in favor of empirical data uh, or even postmodern deconstructive methods that are more likely to reduce ontological or in, in, the, in the case of religion, cosmological uh, notions to systemic socio-historical ones, right? Um, and so there's a, there's a hunger in, I think, in the collective collective consciousness to really return to some kind of ontological ground of being, some kind of rootedness, right? And this kind of gets back to the fascist thing as kind of being a, a toxic and destructive manifestation of this instinct to return to the homeland, right? It's the, the blood and soil, right? It's this kind of sacred home world that we can root ourselves into as a people and as a civilization. And that, that modernity has deracinated us from these roots and that we need to return to some kind of being rooted in something real and not just deconstruct it into this nihilistic nothingness that's that's become the uh, uh, you know the norm right in the kind of postmodern age that we live in, and so and this kind of, I think can kind of segue to in our chart conversation on hyper objects that we're supposed to have, but ju just starting with this the kind of rebirthing right the revivification of the ontological 
I'm wondering what you think of that as kind of a core tenet of the conservative impulse, maybe in, in stark contrast to the left's tendency to try to epistemologize false notions of the ontological, which is kind of the critical theory tradition, right? We're replacing false consciousness, false notions of reality with critical consciousness uh, and interrogating our biases and blind spots about reality, but we're still not going directly to reality, right? And the conservative tradition is how do we go directly to reality? We're, we're like the red pill metaphor, right? Where Neo is awakening from the matrix into uh, the, real, the real world. Um, and so you're actually put, you're actually taken directly, you're, you're put in touch with reality directly um, and, and getting out of the kind of conceptual or the, the epistemological or thinking about reality. So I, I see that as a big part of, especially like the, the Catholic natural law tradition, right? Where there really is a real kind of invisible moral uh, landscape um, that is eternal and cosmic and that transcends human arbitrary creation. Right. And, we, and how do we root into that? And, and so that, that's something I feel like is a big part of this compulsion towards, and that could manifest in a very destructive way or in a very helpful way, but we better do it consciously so it doesn't manifest in a destructive way. Yeah, I think that's a, a really helpful uh, typology here. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, certainly much more conservative or traditional thinking is ontological and uh, essentialist, um, and in reaction to this uh, contextualizing impulse of the more postmodern and and leftist uh, standpoints, uh, they have uh, sort of reified these things even more. Um, and uh, this is where you get, uh, I mean, race ideology that uh, looks at different. Uh, sort of ethnic cultural groups as as very clearly delineated and having some essence to them um and uh so that's that's not good uh doesn't end well usually from uh what i've seen uh but i think uh the the people who are doing all this epistemologizing and relativizing they're not off the hook uh they are leaving people hanging uh pretty seriously um but uh again Maybe you're weak if uh, if you are uh, feeling like you really need uh, solid ground. Um, uh, so, but I, I think that there's probably a healthier uh, way forward than sort of either of these approaches and their their excesses. Um, so, I, I think uh, taking the sort of contextualizing, epistemologizing perspectives very seriously is important. Uh, there's certainly people who try and uh, kind of renounce those in a little too harsh of uh, ways from, from my uh, perspective than what is really warranted in, in trying to sort of get beyond uh, these perspectives. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I think, uh, uh, and I think this does tie into the object-oriented ontology stuff probably, uh, but being able to uh, not get lost in in contextualism, but uh, seeing that sort of position is uh, sort of an important way in which ontology uh, is is sort of characterized or or colored in in certain ways. I think that's probably important. Um, so, yeah, not uh, not uh, just uh, sort of denouncing that uh, ontology is is sort of some fantasy or uh, inachievable or that everything's social constructs or, or whatever, which never sat very well with me. Um, 
and, and but being able to say, yeah, there's probably some ontology. Who knows exactly the extent to which we can uh, contact it? It's certainly not unmediated at all, um, but uh, certainly in our specific setting within our social group and our norms and the natural environment and political situation. Uh, it seems that uh, ultimately with all these things hanging together, we kind of get this sort of picture of ontology, which uh, let's work with that explicitly then um, and uh, not uh, not try and do away with it. And uh, yeah, it's again, like, uh, like kind of where we started this conversation. Uh, if you try and reject uh, ontology entirely, uh, you still end up with some kind of ontological perspective, but you're always looking through it and you can't uh, look at it. So uh, being able to look at your ontology and realize you're always in ontology. <laughs> um, I, I think that's probably uh, the more pragmatic, the more virtuous uh, uh, road forward here. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about hyper objects because I think I wrote up a little paper um, that I sent you on some initial thoughts, some you know kind of um, constellating thoughts on MIP, and part of them, part of the paper included a, a section I called hyper objects and hypocognition, right? And the idea is that there are these hyper objects. Actually, let, let me stop for a second. So maybe you can explain for the audience what is a hyper object. Yeah, so a hyper object, uh, this is a philosophical concept developed by the philosopher Tim Morton, who is in this tradition, object-oriented ontology, which is a, a realist philosophy uh, that uh, considers itself non-modern. Uh, and one way to kind of think about uh, how this ontology works is that uh, it kind of universalizes uh, Kant's divide of uh, phenomena and noumena. So uh, in, in sort of the classical Kantian perspective, you as a human being uh, have this sensuous experience of uh, phenomena, uh, which appear to you in a certain way because of your sort of a priori uh, constitution as, as a human being that gives you the, the qualia that you experience. And so there's this kind of fundamental divide between this uh, numinous world out there and then your phenomenal experience which is colored by uh, your sort of specific existence as as a human being so there's this singular ontological divide that happens between the human and the non-human basically um, so object-oriented ontology said Kant was basically right about that like uh, we do only experience things phenomenally. We can't experience the things in themselves directly, but that's not only a human situation. That is the ontological situation for all objects. Um, so uh, not only other living beings. Uh, so uh, say a, a fish has its own uh, fish phenomenal experience. Uh, that's going to be different from a human being's uh, phenomenal experience because it's a fish and and not a human being, the sort of a priori uh, way that things are translated from the uh, sort of noumenal to the sensual is, is different. Um, even something like uh, a book uh, has a, a sensual encounter with reality that uh, sort of gives it uh, an, a sort of an only a, a phenomenal encounter that is itself uniquely colored by its bookness. Um, and uh, it's this flat ontology, so you don't uh, uh, discriminate or um, 
reduce uh, things to sort of components or uh, their relationships. So uh, something like uh, a, a Beethoven symphony is as ontologically real and as much of an object as, say, the Civil War, as is, say, the marriage between two people, as is rocks, as is exoplanets. All these things are uh, objects, and there's certain sort of fundamental ways that they interact and, and behave with each other. So that's a that's a kind of brief overview of triple uh, O or OOO uh, as it's uh, abbreviated. Awesome, thank you. Yeah, the, the Kantian part I think is important to underscore because Kant famously said, and I love this phrase so much, perception without conception is blind, right? And mm -hmm. he was really the philosopher to really bring forth these abstractions or the a priori categories of the intuition that structure incoming sense data with, without which you would be complete, you would not be able to make sense of reality in any kind of coherent way, right? That there are actually these kind of invisible forces that, that a priori structure how you uh, make sense and interact with reality, right? Like these categories like time, number, what was the other one? Space, um, mm -hmm. right? There, there are these different, these different factors. So to me, MIP really contains a kind of con this kind of Kantian component where when it comes to seeing socio-political systems, let's not fall into this kind of naive political realism, right? Where we believe we can go right to political objects or events in themselves are always going to be scaffolded or determined by the ideological frames, implicit or explicit, that we're operating from, right? Um, and so my idea of connecting that with hyper objects is that I, I noticed that well, first, let me say that a lot of the depolarization work uh, and that different communities are doing, like Braver Angels or you know any any kind of uh, organization that's trying to bridge divides, they focus a lot on values and working with people's values, right? Um, like like you know you're conservative, I'm liberal. We have different values. Let's explore the values. Maybe explore how we might have the same content of values, but express them differently in the political realm, right? I noticed that that was insufficient to really get to the heart of certain divides and that the real divide is actually ontological, not uh, axiological, right? That people are positing different hyper object phenomena uh, that are basically the other person either doesn't believe in or cannot see. And the fact that you can't see that this large hyper object you know, the, 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 whether climate change is a classic example, right? Like if you don't believe in climate change, you're a climate denier uh, and, and being a climate denier means that you're blind to the hyper object that I think is the most dangerous to the world. And we can't mobilize, we can't garner the political will to deal with it because you're blind to X hyper object. So it's like, okay, let's try to, let's try to, instead of just saying what hyper objects are real and what hyper objects are not real, which obviously gets very loaded really quickly, like is systemic racism real, right? Let's just cycle through various frames or, or augmented reality lenses to, to tr that can make hyper objects visible to us, right? That disclose hyper objects and then play with them. And so instead of going directly to the hyper object, let's try on different lenses that illuminate the hyper object. So that was kind of my attempt to bring in this kind of component of ontological player ontological fluidity by starting with the epistemology and seeing experimenting with how that enables us to see a certain hyper object that we would have otherwise missed or overlooked without the lens right so so in that paper that was what I was trying to get at but I think what you were saying was there are a couple of nuances or key points um, about hyper objects that I like missed out on or didn't include or, or maybe misunderstood so I'm wondering if you can kind of clarify that for me uh, right now 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think the biggest thing that jumped out to me was uh, sort of the metaphor of sight uh, that was uh, kind of operating in your definition of uh, hyperobjects. I, I think you said something like uh, hyperobjects, some, uh, something that exists, but you can't perceive all of it uh, or something like that. Uh, object-oriented ontology would hold that that is true for absolutely every object. Uh, every object is only partially uh, uh, perceptible through this sensuous uh, filter. Uh, it always has withdrawn aspects that are inaccessible to us. Um, and not only through perception, but through sort of physical uh, touch, that's another mode of access for, for objects. Uh, so everything is always mediated uh, for triple O. Uh, what makes hyper objects uh, kind of unique in, in Morton's theorizing from every other kinds of kind of object is that they are uh, dispersed over sort of vast swaths of time and space. Um, so uh, they're, they're a lot harder to sort of localize. Um, one other feature here, uh, which is also true for all objects, but I think is especially important for hyperobjects is uh, they are composed of other objects. Uh, an object is made up of uh, many other things that uh, are Again, it, these objects that create something are only partially accessed by uh, the sort of emergent object. So uh, the triple O people like to say the, the parts are uh, greater than the whole, uh, sort of against that uh, classic uh, aphorism. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it makes for this very interesting approach to uh, these these sort of large scale phenomenon. Uh, one of the things that Morton says, which is really interesting, is that uh, hyper objects are actually very ontologically weak uh, because they have all these disparate parts and components that are uh, kind of drawn together that uh, it's kind of hard for them to, to hang together in a, in a certain sense. Um, and so uh, one of the things that Morton tends to suggest uh, as sort of responding to hyperobjects is to, to try and access them in different ways. So for climate change, uh, not, uh, not trying to get caught in these sort of ecological moralizing modes, but what would sort of, uh, sort of joy or playfulness in climate change look like. Um, and certainly any given uh, sort of uh, interaction of oneself with a specific ecology or whether um, you're not, I mean, climate change is, is pervasive. It's this hyper object that we are totally caught up in, but we're also like uh, interacting with very local things that uh, are not reducible to, to climate change. So how can we live sort of joyously in ecology, like uh, despite climate change or because of climate change or within climate change? Uh, and so I think that is probably uh, very helpful in this uh, meta ideological uh, project as well. What, can, what kinds of uh, other modes of relationship can we have with these ideological hyper objects, whether it be uh, systemic racism or um, sort of a virtue a tradition, um, these big categories, because uh, it's easy to get caught in these uh, modes that uh, uh, people in various ideologies say you have to kind of uh, engage with uh, systemic racism, say, in this like deeply uh, moralized, sort of sincere, uh, emotive, visceral uh, 
uh, apologetic almost kind of way. What, what are other ways to sort of engage in this hyper object of systemic racism? And how could these ways sort of uh, hijack the kind of ontological weakness of of systemic racism? How could you, how can you fit joy in as an access mode for, for this? Uh, because I, yeah, systemic racism is a great example. It's spread out, uh, it's this object spread out amongst uh, political institutions, prisons, uh, uh, history textbooks, all these different things are, are hanging together. And so uh, it's, it's loose though, because of that. And so there's, there's points for uh, exploiting that in, in interesting ways. Yeah, that's great. So, so let me go back to what you're saying about the metaphor of sight. So were you saying that the metaphor of sight might not be the most fitting because of how dispersed through time and space the hyper objects are? Or what were you saying with that exactly? Yeah, so uh, the, it, it, it's, not, uh, it's not sort of definitive for, for hyper objects. So uh, no object can be sort of reduced to perception. That's kind of right. one, of the, one of the fundamental uh, insights of, of the object-oriented folks. Um, so yeah, hyper object, uh, it's ontologically weak, dispersed over large swaths of time and space. Um, it, it has as its sort of parts a lot of other objects. Um, mm -hmm. That's that's more the kind of definitive characteristics of a hyper object in particular versus uh, objects uh, in general, which can't be fully accessed by perception or any other mode of access uh, because of this ontological divide that that exists for triple O. Totally, totally. Yeah, and they need to be comprehended by abstraction, right? Because you can't see all of the, like, like you can see little bits and pieces, like with climate change, right? You can see like rising uh, temperatures, you can see like, you know, sea level, you know, whatever. I don't, I don't know all the science about like what goes into climate change, but you can't actually see the entire phenomena all at once. Yeah, but that, that is true for, for all other objects too. Um, they'll always be mediated by something or another that can be thought abstractions or uh, sort of immediate perceptions or mm. uh, some kind of other object that uh, comes in uh, to, to mediate, like, uh, like say, um, an instrument uh, mediates between a human being and, and music to actually sort of uh, engage the object of say what's on the, the sheet music. Um, so yeah, that's again, uh, something that's kind of kind of universal for, uh, for objects. But yeah, in terms of abstractions, um, I don't know if that is exactly how Morton would uh, look at uh, hyper objects because they're they're ontologically real, so they aren't right. aren't just human kind of constructs that are overlaid onto some uh, external reality. Um, but I don't know that uh, Morton would even kind of like the idea that uh, you engage with hyper objects through abstractions. I, I think that's maybe the problem uh, for, mm. for Morton, that we try to fit these ontologically huge things into these abstractions. And then like, uh, because of that, we feel so overwhelmed. Like, what can you do about climate change? Uh, we're trapped in this huge catastrophe uh, and trying to uh, like only think about it globally. And you lose the ability to navigate more uh, locally and look at the different parts of this hyper object in sort of dynamic ways and come to new modes of, of relationship and, and not get sort of caught in this uh, dialectic of sorts of uh, 
this hyper object being so massive. Oh, I can't do anything. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think abstraction might might have more of a negative valence uh, for these theorists. Yeah, very interesting. So so maybe abstraction is not the right word, but we can discuss this in real time. So I'm thinking about abstraction in terms of let's take systemic racism for example. It's another kind of polarizing concept that a lot of people don't believe is a real thing. So this is where kind of the ontological divide is, right? I believe systemic racism is a real thing and, and you don't believe systemic racism is a real thing. So screw you, right? You're complicit in systemic racism or you're a climate denier or you don't believe in the rampant fake news and conspiracy and, and whatever that's infected our system. So you're a sheep, right? Uh, whatever angle you want to come from or you don't uh, believe in great replacement theory. So you're, part of, you're the enemy, right? Um, so some of these are real, some of these are not real, but like, or, or to varying degrees, right? Or have different ontological weight. Um, but let, let's go to systemic racism as an example. Uh, so someone might say, yes, you know, there are, there are instances in which the system might disproportionately discriminate against certain racial groups over others, or that there might be ripple effects from history of, of very um, explicit acts of racism that are still uh, playing a role today, right? That, that these kind of emanations from history are definitely still contributing to inequalities between groups and so forth. Um, but the skeptic would say, you can see all these one-off parts of it, but I still don't believe that there is this mysterious magical thing in the ether called systemic racism. In the same way with climate change, sure, you know, the temperatures have gone up over the last 10 years and sure ocean levels have risen a little bit and sure their extreme weather patterns might be on the rise as a, as a you know on the average, but I still don't believe in this abstraction of climate that of climate change, right? That's kind of where I'm using the word abstraction. Like I don't, I can see the parts but I can't see the hole that arises from the parts that is the hyper object. So that's where I'm, I'm, I see where a lot of the, um, the, the misunderstanding of the divides come up is because people can, will concede that they'll see the bits and pieces of, of said hyper object, <clears throat> but they don't believe in the emergent entity of the hyper object as a whole. Yeah, uh, I think... I think what what Morton would uh, partially want to say here is that uh, one of the problems, uh, maybe because of hyperobjects being sort of ontologically weak, is yeah, they they are hard to uh, access. They are more abstract than the average object. Um, but that's that's actually kind of okay. Uh, getting caught in oh, you need to believe in systematic racism as this kind of whole, or uh, climate change as this kind of whole, is uh, one of the big stumbling blocks, uh, probably. Um, and of course, it's still useful to to have these kinds of analyses. Um, but uh, I mean, if you're only focused on sort of this uh, overarching hyper object and that's sort of where your ability to engage with others sort of uh, lives or dies that's that's kind of a hard position to be in so I, I, I yeah I think uh, I think you're you're probably actually on the the right track in 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 that regard um, yeah being able to uh, have have more nuanced uh, relationships with with the hyper object doesn't actually require that you, um, sort of uh, profess kind of faith in in the in the hyper object in some way. You can uh, probably engage with uh, someone in a productive way who uh, doesn't uh, fully buy the systematic uh, racism narrative, um, 
in a, in a way that uh, you don't get caught on on trying to bring them into sort of your orthodoxy or or something. Um, and you can instead uh, work a little more pragmatically and and uh, politically. But th that might be a bit more my interpretation. One of the one of the things I know Morton does say about the the triple O perspective broadly is. Uh, by having this flat ontology where uh, things are not sort of granted ontological priority uh, over one another, um, all, all sort of uh, uh, choice kind of becomes political uh, in a sense, and not in sort of the human political domain, but uh, choosing to have solidarity in, in various ways. Uh, you don't have this... Uh, ontological crutch to sort of lean on that kind of justifies it along sort of rational lines. So uh, for example, um, let's see if I can think of anything. Yeah, I mean like a sort of a natural law kind of perspective gives you this uh, scaffolding that uh, allows you to, to justify certain perspectives over others uh, as, as rational um, for like abortion or something, uh, whereas triple O does not give you those resources. You sort of have to uh, kind of be out on your own. Uh, you're, you're, you're hanging uh, a bit and uh, you're, you are then on the hook for your kind of political allegiances with uh, sort of non-human objects uh, and other human beings, uh, certainly. Um, so yeah, that's kind of an interesting aspect to uh, to the theory that might have some some relevance here. Yeah, totally. Have you ever studied Roy Boscar's critical realism? I have not, no. Okay, I was talking to Bruce Alderman a little bit about hyper objects and Boscar's critical realism, which, which, uh, which Bruce draws a lot from in his own work on um, post-metaphysical spirituality. And he made a really helpful distinction for me that I'm trying to wrap my head around to integrate into all of this, which is the distinction between a hyper object and a demi-reality. So, de so he described a demi-reality, which, like, which is a concept from Roy Boscar. Uh, demi-reality is kind of like a pseudo hyper object. It's more like an egregore that emerges as a result of, an, of a supposed hyper object being ideologically co-opted but it still does have its own, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy a la Thomas theorem in sociology, right? People start behaving and treating it as if it's real. So it kind of becomes real, even though it may not be like as real or ontologically strong as like a climate change or something, right? So one example would be great, the great replacement uh, of, of white people or European ethnic people, uh, you know, by hordes of invading brown people that notion is a kind of demi-reality that drove uh, Peyton Gendron, who shot up a bunch of Black people at that Buffalo supermarket. But in terms of like, you know what I'm saying? Like we can't, like calling that a hyper object and placing it on the same moral and ontological footing as like a climate change feels a little weird. So that's where Bruce is like, let's, let's play with this idea of a demi-reality, right? A kind of egregorically, um, ideologically hijacked hyper object that becomes kind of real based on a lot of people believing in it. I'm just wondering what your what your thoughts are on that distinction. Yeah, I I think uh, sticking with the the triple O perspective, they they would probably reject that kind of characterization and say that a hyper object is is still or or even just a, a normal object is still what's going on. The fact that uh, 
the the human aspect in some in some sense uh, kind of co-creates the sort of emergent object that's not really kind of ontologically uh, like important because there's not this kind of hard ontological distinction between the human and the non-human. Um, so it, for example, the great replacement theory uh, hyperobject. Yeah, I mean, that's just as much of a hyperobject as the climate change uh, example is, but uh, perhaps the the human component is is playing a, a more significant role. Um, and uh, it's it's more uh, it's drawing more on this this purely cultural sociological uh, ideological dimensions of of human beings rather than these uh, sort of actual migration patterns and uh, real sort of uh, demographic shifts these sorts of things. Um, but those those kinds of uh, like looking at demographic shift versus sort of ideological uh perspectives there's again not a sort of ontological a priori distinction between those um so yeah i think it would still fit in the the hyper object uh uh category but yeah it would include sort of more of the human uh, uh aspect of it than than climate change which does uh include largely um non-human uh aspects as important in, in terms of uh, causation uh, anyways, but uh, certainly you can't have the, the hyper object of climate change without the human element uh, either, which is again, why it's kind of ontologically weak. Like, uh, I mean, we could literally just stop burning fossil fuels tomorrow. I mean, it's, that's not pragmatically going to happen, but uh, it does show that uh, this isn't some, oh, just out there kind of problem. It really is this really relational human being kind of kind of issue? Um, so yeah, the the fact that there aren't these uh, uh, ontological distinctions uh, again, it, it gives this uh, political uh, dimension to uh, all sort of uh, ontology and and your sort of allegiances. So we can't uh, just sort of go, oh, this is a was a demi-reality, uh, and this is a hyper-object, therefore I'm going to get rid of this one, I'm going to take this one seriously. Um, thus my rationality has spoken about these matters, you know, you you need to to really get in the muck with with all these issues uh, in, in uh, the triple O perspective. Yeah, that makes sense, because one thing I told Bruce is my concern with that distinction is people start weaponizing it, right, like yours is a demi-reality, but mine's a hyper-object, right? Uh, yours is like a bullshit made up delusional fantasy uh, of mass hysteria and mine's a real thing. Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of how I was originally using hyperobjects. I think the only thing that gave me pause was rereading some of his book and like the, the, his, in the introduction when he's talking about what a hyperobject is, like all of the examples were like physical, more like physical things or like something you'd study in the hard sciences. But I was thinking about it in terms of like the internet or like culture or the nation state or yeah, whatever. Um, and then I think it also gets a little bit more questionable because I was also using it to describe things like game theoretic multipolar traps, <laughs> you know, like a prisoner's dilemma writ large that keeps us stuck in this kind of, uh, you know, destructive, competitive capitalist global system, right, where there are strategic interdependencies between competing nation states or economies that lock each agent, each player in the game into a certain strategy that's destructive to the commons. 
but I don't know if that like is that too much of a stretch to call that a hyper object? No, I I, I probably don't think so. Um, okay. Yeah, I guess I don't know how hard and fast of a definition this would be, but I think it's probably a, a useful heuristic. But uh, I think the the more an object draws on uh, things that we would sort of traditionally consider as very ontologically uh, distinct, uh, the more it's probably uh, in this hyper-object terrain. So climate change, for example, uh, draws upon ecosystems, weather, um, human ideology, uh, scientific measurements and instruments, the news media communication, um, uh, science education in, in high schools, um, uh, uh, car advertising. Uh, so like, whoa, there's like all these things that are sort of wrapped up uh, into, into this one object and relating to it in, in various ways. Um, so yeah, if you see that there's clearly human and non-human, large scale and small scale, um, all, all these different kinds of uh, things that we kind of normally would divide ontologically in, in a more traditional frame, the more that those are all kind of coming together to uh, participate in, in something that may be considered a hyper object. I think that's probably a good clue that uh, the thing is a hyper object. So maybe, maybe from that perspective, um, looking at uh, the great replacement or something comes off as a little less of a hyper object because it really does seem more uh, constrained to these kind of uh, human sort of mental and ideological and uh, communicative domains. It's a little harder to really robustly place it uh, in the world, uh, so to speak. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it'd still be an object, it'd just be uh, a little different, uh, drawing on fewer components and uh, then, then the access modes available may be a little more straightforward uh, in that sense. Uh, so. That, that's another interesting kind of lens, I think, because in terms of what are the factors that are contained in the hyperobject, right? They're dispersed over huge time and temporal, uh, you know, and spatial uh, scales, but also the diversity of inputs that gives rise to them, right? So you, I think what you're saying too is like that great replacement, like the, yeah, it's a narrower range of factors that would give rise to that, whereas climate change, it's like, it's every institution, person, behavior, atmospheric ecological thing that all goes into this this hyper object right that goes into creating it or whatever um so yeah that's, i think that's another it's like the range or the width the breadth of breadth of inputs that go into leading to this emergent hyper entity right yeah absolutely um and uh yeah i mean that's uh that's what makes them hard to deal with, but also what uh, kind of gives us a, a pathway forward. Because I mean, if there's so many myriad different ways to plug into to this object, uh, and we're already so immersed in it that we kind of can't can't step out of it, uh, well, we can kind of be very creative with uh, how we might uh, uh, interact with it. Uh, so uh, that that's kind of where I think the kind of liberative uh, perspective of, of triple O, at least with, mm. with the, uh, climate change kind of comes in, uh, so. Cool, cool. Awesome, well, do you have a few more minutes uh, talk about one more thing? Sure. Cool, so I, I wanted to end by talking about your work or interest in like interreligious discourse. 
um, which also was something Bruce Alderman and I discussed when we interviewed him on this podcast, because I think there are, has been a lot of great work done in interreligious discourse. And I see a lot of parallels, obviously, between that and political depolarization, which is my thing, and, and trying, to, trying to, you know, resource insights and uh, methodologies that have been successful in the religious arena and kind of transposing them to the political context. So I'm curious, yeah, just, just what has been your um, kind of work or exploration or interest in that? And what have you found helpful to really facilitate effective uh, interreligious dialogue and understanding? Yeah, yeah. So I've uh, been pretty active in in terms of interfaith stuff uh, since uh, since my college days, um, and uh, it's been interesting because uh, having sort of a concrete, uh, clear, discrete religious identity myself uh, has not really sort of been there for most of that time. So it gives me kind of a a weird liminal position in in some of these dialogues, but. It also uh, has certainly helped uh, enable me a, a strong kind of mediation uh, uh, ability because I'm certainly very sympathetic to a number of different perspectives rather than being really pigeonholed into a, a certain one that then is very much going to color kind of how I how I might see other traditions. Um, yeah, so. Uh, within religion uh, and uh, dialogue between religion, this idea of polemics is certainly um, uh, very important. And it, it, uh, it's very common that this is the sort of mode for engagement uh, between traditions. Uh, so you'll have uh, Christian polemics against Islam, which uh, shows the various shortcomings of uh, Islam and why Christianity is the superior religion. Um, Obviously, this is not a great starting place for helpful interfaith dialogue. Um, it's a great way to uh, sort of drum up enthusiasm for one's own tribe, uh, which, hey, perhaps that has an important place. Um, but we certainly don't want this to be the only mode of uh, interaction available between traditions. So yeah, being able to get beyond that uh, polemical mode and see different uh, religions, uh, say, uh, trying to achieve similar goals can be helpful, certainly. Um, and uh, I know Bruce talks about this as well, seeing like functional similarities between uh, different traditions where um, even even though the concepts and the aesthetics, say, of, of something may be very different between two traditions, you can see how they functionally have a, a, a sort of a, a similar role uh, within the overall religious uh, landscape of a particular tradition. So that can be very helpful. Um, yeah, and uh, I mean, just uh, taking a, an attitude of curiosity, appreciation uh, is, is very, <laughs> very baseline uh, helpful in terms of uh, approaching different traditions. But a lot of people, who are on the more traditional side of things sort of uh, don't don't see much need of of that kind of attitude because oh my team uh, we have the truth uh, what am I going to really uh, learn of value from this other tradition um, yeah so it, it can be hard to to get past that uh, that kind of sensibility that basic exclusivist uh, sensibility especially in Abrahamic religions but uh, there aren't uh, sort of problematic uh, polemical orientations within other faiths as well um, so yeah those are those are some thoughts to kind of start off there 
Yeah, it reminds me using the exclusivist, inclusivist, pluralist frame, uh, kind of an argument I make for exclusivists for pluralism, which is if you don't explore a wider range of religions or philosophies, then it be, you can't reject them with as much force or vigor or confidence, right? Like you can't reject something to meaningfully double down on what really does resonate with you as your path if you haven't explored all the options, right? Like I can't mm -hmm. double down on chocolate ice cream being my favorite flavor if I haven't tried vanilla and strawberry, <laughs> right? right? And so it's like, even if you're good at, even if you're in an exclusivist mindset, you, you want it, your goal is to just double down on one because you don't want to contaminate yourself by being religiously polyamorous. Uh, you can do that more meaningfully by dating a lot of girls first before getting married, <laughs> right? <laughs> Totally. Yeah, that's a, that's a funny analogy. Yeah, I mean, uh, being able to make sort of deeper polemics uh, can probably, there's probably a place for that uh, uh, pragmatically. I can certainly um, make a, a strong Christian polemic against Islam. I can certainly make a strong Islamic uh, polemic against uh, Christianity and I could do could do that with Buddhism uh, against those two religions and likewise uh, the other way around there as well um, but it, it's certainly not the the end point you want to leave off at um, but likewise you don't want to fall into this kind of uh, happy-go-lucky kind of uh, ecumenism or pluralism where oh, all our religions are uh, really trying to do the same thing and uh, they're, they're all good and right in their own way, um, which is something I actually do personally believe, but it's often presented in, in a much less sophisticated sort right. of uh, mode um, that then is actually a barrier to, to this deeper, deeper dialogue that is actually very necessary. Um, and being able to hit up against some of those um, hard points of uh, uh, disagreement is, is quite important, uh, actually, uh, because if you don't do that, then you don't know how you really should engage in those in those kind of breakdown uh, situations. Like, uh, like for example, uh, there's very different perspectives on Jesus in Islam and Christianity, and in both those cases, these are sort of orthodox doctrines. Uh, about uh, the figure of Christ rather than just sort of general religious perspectives. Like, for example, a, a Buddhist might have any number of uh, perspectives on Jesus, but those aren't sort of uh, dogmatically required by Buddhism, uh, mm -hmm. whereas both Islam and Christianity do have, uh, to a certain degree, uh, kind of hard doctrines about uh, Christ, and they're pretty irreconcilable. Um, they're both very positive, uh, mm. where Christianity views Jesus generally as the incarnation of God, uh, fully divine, fully human, uh, uh, involved in salvation in, in some sense, uh, crucified and, and resurrected, uh, part of a trinity that uh, uh, a three persons uh, that uh, express divinity in in different uh, aspects uh, islam uh, says jesus is a very important prophet of god uh, uh, he's very much not divine uh, still still born of a virgin birth um, still came uh, to uh, declare uh, sort of god's word uh, 
through his his ministry and life, um, not crucified, um, though the Quranic verses dealing with this uh, topic are a little bit ambiguous. So there are some uh, hmm. scholars historically and, and currently who work to kind of reconcile what the Quran says with uh, the more traditional historical account of uh, the crucifixion in, in Christianity. Um, uh, Jesus has an important eschatological function in Islam. He's coming back uh, and, and judging. Um, mm. So you see there's, that. yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of parallels here, uh, but some pretty important uh, disagreements too. And totally. this is the kind of issue that, uh, uh, how, how are you going to reconcile that? That's kind right. of a, a pretty irreconcilable difference unless you're willing to go very esoteric um, with it and say that, well, I mean, prophecy in Islam, you have these sort of uh, ideal human beings uh, expressing God's word uh, literally in, in revelation. Um, well, in Christianity, you also have Jesus as this kind of receptacle of, of God's literal word. Well, maybe these aren't too different, uh, but I mean, there's, I mean, still, it's, it's, that's hard to, to get everyone to sort of buy into that kind of stretch from uh, how the mainline Orthodox positions are often understood. Um, so yeah, I, I think uh, being able to uh, figure out what to do in, in those cases uh, is, is important. Um, but I, I, the other insight here uh, that I really have specifically gained from uh, studying Islam and Christianity especially is that uh, the, the hardest gaps to bridge are not the ones that are furthest apart, but the ones that are closest together in some sense. Like, this is a problem because both Christianity and Islam uh, care about Jesus a lot and uh, uh, are talking very much parallel to one another versus Christianity and Buddhism. They're so far apart that, like, the the disagreements are, they, they don't have the same kind of visceral weight. Um, yeah. Like a Christian could could look at the Buddha again in any number of ways, just like the the Buddhist could look at Jesus in any number of ways, and uh, those could be amenable or or not. Um, but you're not kind of locked into these disagreements about kind of uh, issues that are central for for both the religions. A, a Christian kind of doesn't know what to do religiously about the idea of emptiness or something. But it's not exactly a threat. It doesn't uh, doesn't uh, sort of uh, undercut the the whole christian narrative but when a muslim says oh jesus was just a prophet that's like a a direct kind of attack on on the uh sort of core of the the religion there uh, so I, I think there's probably some interesting parallels to that dynamic in the the political domain and that's probably why a lot of political infighting uh happens huh? <laughs> yeah totally that's really interesting it makes a lot of sense though um yeah, so I, I guess a couple things I want to ask you. I want to talk about a little bit about like Sam Harris's kind of <laughs> whole shtick and critique. And, and because I think this also really parallels a lot of debate around ideology and politics. And it's this idea that the most salient variable and contributing factor to Islamic radical extremist violence is the ideology of Islam, is the Quran, and is the example of Muhammad. And so it has to do with the content of the religion, not socioeconomic conditions, not 
demographic shifts, not war, not history, not, not all of the other more sociopolitical, economic, systemic factors, right? But it, it has to do with the content of the religion. And when you look at other religious traditions like Buddhism, um, because, or, or um, Jainism, the content is so radically different, right? Centering nonviolence and compassion, et cetera, that when the Chinese were, you know, invading and torturing Tibetans, the, their primary concern was to not lose compassion for their prison tormentor instead of uh, wanting to blow them up. Right? So he places so much emphasis on the scriptural content as leading to, let's say, the problematic aspects. And so I'm wondering, A, like, what is your, what is your thought about that line of thinking, especially as it pertains to, to Islam? And two, how do you think about weighing the various causal factors that can lead to a, a problematic outcome? And, and how much weight do you put on scriptural content? And how much weight do you put on everything else? Yeah, big, big questions. Um, yeah, so I, I take Sam Harris's critique pretty seriously. I, I don't think it's something you can easily dismiss. Um, I, I don't agree with him. Um, I, I think that uh, the sort of political historical factors are much more uh, important than he would he would say. Um, whereas he really does want to uh, not fully reduce down uh, all sorts of uh, Islamic extremism just to scriptural and sacred sources, but uh, he views those as sort of core causal elements um, and thinks that were those not present, the, the situation would be uh, very different, which could, could very well be the case. Um, uh, certainly there are resources uh, within the tradition that can be very, uh, very much weaponized for uh, extremism. Uh, but to get to that point, uh, the tradition itself needs to degrade quite significantly. Um, because there are these sorts of uh, uh, strong interpretive uh, paradigms and schools uh, that uh, would would certainly restrict the kind of uh, extremist violence uh, that has become somewhat commonplace uh, in uh, modernity uh, with regard to Islam. They, they would restrict those very significantly. Things like uh, suicide bombing or even just uh, sort of offensive uh, military strikes uh, are pretty questionable. Suicide bombing is very uncontroversially uh, prohibited uh, by any traditional Islamic scholar. Um, so, I mean, yeah, the resources are there, but they, they need to be pretty strongly decoupled from the developed tradition before they're really accessible in, in a meaningful way. Um, and that decoupling has happened through a combined process of uh, colonialism and uh, sort of like a multinational uh, exploitation of uh, uh, these Muslim-majority countries in the third world or global south by uh, sort of capitalist interests. Uh, so there's there's very important non-religious reasons why this, uh, this situation has developed. Um, but that's not to say that, uh, oh, the, the Islamic tradition prior to uh, this period of time was this like perfectly peaceful, uh, and progressive uh, civilization in line with the kinds of values that uh, the progressive liberals of our day would hold. Uh, 
but it certainly is is not the kind of uh, tradition that would encourage uh, suicide bombing. Um, I think the the Sam Harris critique works if you're if you're really willing to uh, entirely denounce all religions, uh, pretty much. Um, certainly, uh, looking at the historical data around sort of interreligious wars and violence, uh, I think most historians would probably agree that uh, the Christian world is uh, sort of worse on that scorecard than the Islamic world. Uh, that would come as a surprise to a lot of people. Um, but certainly things like the Protestant Reformation led to, to very bloody and prolonged conflicts for serious amounts of time. Um, and there's been sectarian violence in the Islamic world as well, certainly. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's important to, to be able to uh, have a multivariable analysis of, of these sorts of things. Uh, but I don't know, Sam Harris, his, his stuff is, is kind of interesting. I know there's uh, this one uh, sort of, I think it's an afterword in one of his books or something. I've just heard him discuss it on uh, podcasts and such where he, uh, I think he takes some like recipe or something and tries to like spin it as mysticism. Uh, so he talks about uh, how the salt in this recipe is, is symbolic of uh, something or another. Um, and he does this to show that, oh, like these, these sort of mystical aspects of of a religious tradition. Um, we can have those and we can kind of be creative with those. We don't need to bring along all this baggage of the uh, sort of superstitious religious perspectives, but also that uh, on the other hand, that the, the mysticism is very feeble. Like I can create it out of a recipe uh, uh, just as well as, as these uh, folks could. Um, but I think, the, I think what he misses there is, uh, just the sort of like not all symbolism is created equally. Uh, some is viscerally compelling for people uh, and really pulls on psychological strings. I don't think anyone, uh, even if they were presented with his sort of recipe mysticism, like out of context where it's obviously kind of a, a silly project and was kind of reading it as, as, as if it was earnest, I don't know how many people would be compelled uh, by it. I don't think very many, but the, the mystical traditions within the, the major world religions and these, these scriptures and symbolism and poetic traditions, all these things, uh, I mean, they are uh, very compelling. Uh, I mean, look at their uh, longevity, uh, certainly. Uh, and then just the other kind of important historical point I would make uh, in terms of Islam and kind of delineating uh, sort of Islamic violence across history is uh, just being able to situate, say, the early Islamic empire conquests that happened uh, in this context of the age of empires that uh, it happened in, where, uh, yeah, everyone was taking over lands. Uh, and of course, this was expressed in, in religious language uh, for these uh, Islamic uh, conquesters. Um, but uh, to, to not sort of, uh, to look at that as like essentially driven by Islam in and of itself um, versus uh, 
being much more forgiving about like uh, Genghis Khan. Like I feel like you don't hear like, uh, oh, about Mongol extremism. And of course it doesn't really exist contemporarily, but I feel like even Genghis Khan, like Westerners will kind of be like, oh, that was cool. Or Alexander the Great, they like, they're so willing to kind of set aside current moral uh, uh, standards and like look at this as like a cool empire like historical kind of thing but with islam that very much goes out the window um very quickly so a lot of uh, islamic historians will uh locate the, the sort of causal uh, aspect of islamic empire not in the the religion in and of itself uh, and uh, an important sort of feature here also is that uh I mean, when these Muslims then conquered non-Muslim territory uh, against what would be commonly believed by a lot of uh, Fox News watching Americans, uh, there was not really forced conversion of the, the populations. Um, that was very rare uh, in, in uh, Islamic uh, history. Certainly religious minorities had to pay a, a special tax uh, to live uh, under the empire. But uh, they, were, they were granted a decent bit of religious freedom by the standards of their day. And conversion happened pretty much organically within these places, especially through the, the Sufi mystics that uh, sort of followed suit uh, as these uh, lands were uh, taken under Islamic political control. So, yeah, and uh, I mean, a lot of the times uh, this led to an improvement of uh, social conditions uh, in, in various ways. For, for its time, Islam was a progressive and uh, forward-thinking religion, giving women uh, a lot more rights uh, and such. Uh, I don't think we want to, to limit our, our perspectives to these sort of early Islamic uh, accounts of uh, of these kind of progressive values but uh yeah i think i think it's important context uh nonetheless so that's a, a broad overview uh here that was great i, I love the uh genghis khan double standard problem right where yeah. it's like it's, it's interesting to really think about that and question that where when something seems to be ideologically or in this case religiously motivated as a primary driving force or even just the justification or rationale for carrying out Kind of violent mm -hmm. genocidal actions that has way more charge and controversy to it than someone just doing that because that's just what you do back in the days of savage empires right right um so yeah that's that's always really interesting to me but one, one of the the things that comes up a lot i think in, in depolarization to kind of draw a bridge here is like separating the culture from the content right so like yeah. there might be problematic cultural or social or political manifestations that have been done in the name of X ideology, but that doesn't mean we should completely throw away the ideology, right? Like just because certain people have co-opted it or misappropriated or weaponized it in a really egregious way, doesn't mean that we should just completely dismiss, you know, the actual content of what's being said, especially when it can be interpreted in a whole bunch of different ways, right? Like you can have interpretations that are completely different or even, even you know, with like the Buffalo shooter, like yeah, he, he was radicalized to white supremacist extremism and, and did something horrible, but there are a lot of other people who are also, you know, believe in the same things that he believes in and support him, but they still wouldn't actually do anything violent, right? So there, there's always other variables which really, um, which influence and determine what sets people over the edge in terms of directly sponsoring violent or problematic actions. Um, so we shouldn't just dismiss the content or the theoretical justifications for the actions. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the things my Islamic studies professor in undergrad uh, always sort of emphasized was that uh, the sacred sources in Islam don't speak for themselves. Um, they're always sort of presented through an interpretive uh, lens. Uh, and that's that's how it, it always works. So uh, when someone asks like, oh, what does Islam say about uh, uh, XYZ? Uh, that's not really a meaningful question. Uh, you could get a lot more specific and say, oh, what does the, the Maliki school of uh, jurisprudence say about this uh, issue in Islamic context? And someone could say, oh, uh, Imam Malik uh, said this and uh, his commentators uh, uh, clarified this and this point. And so, I mean, but that's, that's different than saying, what does Islam essentially uh, say about a, a certain issue? Um, the Quran does not sort of come with a, an interpreter's manual that is equally authoritative. Um, I mean, it has, it has a lot of uh, important pointers uh, in terms of what might be important. Uh, and then the Hadith literature uh, gives some, some clearer guidance, but that, that in and of itself doesn't have quite as, as much uh, certainty and uh, hermeneutic weight as, as the Quran itself, as the, the literal uh, word of God. Um, but yeah, so I mean, it's a uh, you gotta you gotta be willing to get kind of fine grained on on these issues is is basically what it comes down to. Um, and learning the the historical tradition is very important, um, so that you're not uh, sort of taking the fundamentalists at their word as sort of a the real uh, bearers of the tradition uh, and and what it means. Uh, but that also doesn't mean that we wouldn't want to. Uh, revise or build on uh, the the tradition um, there, and, and and that's like actually a very normal perspective because uh, that's exactly what the tradition was doing throughout uh, all of its history. It wasn't uh, wasn't static. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, just uh, being willing to engage a bit critically uh, is is important, but uh, doing so from a, a place that really does incorporate uh, historical knowledge. Uh, to a significant degree, um, and uh, doesn't uh, doesn't like uh, before the fact kind of decide who is authentic interpreters of of the tradition, especially as an outsider. So like, uh, I, there's certainly sort of progressive Islam nowadays, and there's a big Islamic modernist movement, uh, especially in South Asia, uh, what's today India and Pakistan. Uh, like 20th century, even even late 19th century, uh, and and in other parts of the Islamic world as well. Um, but uh, but Sam Harris would kind of reject those people as like uh, having less authority to say what Islam truly is than either the the jihadists or or the more traditional uh, folks who certainly would denounce jihad, but they they have some laundry and baggage of their own. Uh, uh, certainly by again progressive standards of our day uh but how can he how can he do that as an outsider and and sort of say that these progressive muslims who uh are living up to these standards uh are are somehow less authentic interpreters of the tradition i i don't know that that is sort of philosophically justifiable at least on the face of it you could make arguments but it's going to be hard again from the outside because you'd need to actually have a good understanding of how authority works in the tradition and 
uh, what perspective on religious authority within the tradition, because there's more than one, uh, is is the correct perspective. So you, you really got to get in there and kind of inhabit it to really be able to uh, even make those claims, unless they're kind of flimsy, uh, very ideologically driven claims. Um, so <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 100%. 100%. Awesome. Well, we've been going for just over two hours. Uh, <laughs> this has been this has been so much fun, Jared. Um, thank you so much for your time, and, and always a pleasure sure, to man. talk to you. Do you have any uh, concluding thoughts or any final kind of you know words on this these last two hours? Um, yeah, good question. I guess uh, stay tuned as I develop my uh, hyper object meta ideological jihadist uh, manifesto. <laughs> uh coming down the pipes well <laughs> <laughs> uh, looking for looking forward to that episode yeah uh, when it airs <laughs> um awesome well yeah thanks again uh this is a lot of fun and um let's do this again sometime for sure for sure for sure all right have a good one